Good morning, Pacific City Church. Uh, my name is Jesse Eshelman, and I serve as the pastoral apprentice here at Pack City. Um, it is such a joy to be able to bring to you the Word of God this morning. Uh, now, I'm from the south suburbs of Chicago. I'm a diehard Cubs fan. Any Cubby fans out here? Anyone? No. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's, I'm still sticking to it. So anyways, uh, I came out here to L.A. four and a half years ago where I went to Biola University. Um, and that's where I met my lovely wife, Lucy. Um, we've been married for nine months. And uh, I am just so thankful that she is, uh, she's here cheering me on today. So... Um, Well, it is such a joy to be here today and to be able to share a bit of my story and a bit more of what God has put on my heart um, for us today. Before we hop in, I just want to submit our time in prayer. Um, So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. Lord, I believe that you are here in this place. And I long to be able to be a good expositor of your word. Lord, I want to thank you in particular this morning for the steadfast love that you have poured out on each person in this room, the extravagant love that you offer so freely to us. I am reminded of that old Anglican prayer this morning, God, what we know not teach us, what we are not make us, and what we have not give us. God, I submit this time to you, and Father, I ask, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, it is good to be here with you guys this morning. Before we hop into our text today, I think it's good for you to get to know me a bit more. Now, I remember being a sophomore in public high school back in uh, the south suburbs of Chicago. It was in that time in life when you're a sophomore in high school where everything around you just kind of starts to click. Like you understand what politics are. You understand Democratic, Republican, right? And then you understand like how to start driving and things just start to click. Your, your world starts to make sense a bit more. And it's also at this time where the things that you thought were facts actually turn out to become more beliefs. And that, those categories kind of become a bit harder to understand. And I, I was at this time, I began my AP World History class. This was a college-level class, and, and pardon me, but I am a nerd, I am a dork, and I was stoked for this thing. I was so ready to get into it and hop into it. So um, where do you start with an AP World History class? You start with origins. And so I was ready. I, I had my Bible with me. I had Genesis open. I was ready to talk about Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, Noah, the whole shebang. You get it. That was all I knew. And I thought that I had a pretty solid head start on everybody else uh, around me in the room. I was ready to ace this course. And I got into class with Mr. Schmidt. And I had my Bible on my desk. I kid you not. I was a sophomore in high school, open to Genesis 1. And I was, I was pretty much ready to teach the class. And to my surprise, what did we talk about? We talked about the Big Bang. We talked about evolution. We talked about Homo sapiens evolving from Neanderthals. And I was confused. I really was. And I remember asking my, or raising my hand somewhat timidly. And I said, Mr. Schmidt, with all due respect, what about Adam and Eve? What about them? <laughs> and... Uh, then I realized that 
everybody around me didn't believe what I was believing. And I thought that this was fact. I thought Adam and Eve were the first human beings. And I realized that I was one of the only people that actually believed that. The class goes on. I remember being shocked. I remember reading different stories from around the world as to how mankind came to be, how we evolved from Neanderthals. I I remember learning that religion was this made-up cultural thing that we just put together in our minds to feel better about ourselves. I remember I was, I was struggling in that time. People who I thought were Christians next to me began to fall by the wayside. They didn't have a reason to believe in what they used to anymore. And pretty quickly, nothing seemed to matter to them. In fact, nothing mattered at all to them pretty quickly. I was beginning to see something fascinating. And that's that our beliefs give us purpose. They give us meaning. They give us passion. And at a mere 15 years old, I began to ask God, if this whole God and Christianity thing is true, then what? What does that mean for me? Why am I here? God, what matters? And for the next eight months straight, I kid you not, I ran to God in prayer. I locked myself in my room for hours on end. And I prayed to God one question. And that one question was, God, Why have you made me? What am I here for? Why now? Why me? What is my purpose? Now in a room this big, I am sure that I'm not the only one who's asked this question before. In fact, I'm almost certain that every single one of you has asked this question before. Why am I here? And you may not have grown up in the Christian home that I did. You may not have asked this question at 14 or 15. But the reality is is that each one of us wants an answer to this question. What on earth am I here for? Have you ever thought about why we ask this question? Think about it. Why do we want to have purpose? What is it about purpose that that gives us a reason to live? What, What does passion do for us? Well, I think it really boils down to the fact that we want to know that our life matters. We want to convince ourselves that what we're doing is what we are meant to do. Maybe some of us are in a place here today where we're operating in our passion areas already, and that's great, but I want you to know you're probably in the minority. For most of us, we feel like we might be missing something, that there's something greater that we could be doing with our lives. And and most of us, we're, we're just plugging in our time card, time card, time card, and soon, before we know it, we've been doing that for weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years and then decades And then you stop and pause and you say, wait a second. Am I adding anything to this world around me? Is what I'm doing making a difference? Well, today we're going to be talking about passion. We're going to be talking about what matters. And currently, we're going through a series called The Good Life. Now, what does passion have to do with the good life? Does God value passion? Well, in our text today, rumors of an assassination plot are going through this small town called Bethany. Apparently, this guy uh, was, was being persecuted for supposedly blaspheming God. And we know who this guy was. It was Jesus. And Jesus had a friend named Mary. Not Mary, Jesus' mom, but a friend. That was a common name back then. But this Mary knew that this assassination plot to try and kill Jesus was getting more and more serious each and every day. And another interesting thing about Mary, though, 
is that Jesus had just raised her older brother, Lazarus, from the dead. He had literally raised Lazarus, her brother, from the dead. And so Jesus is coming over to their house, and Mary gets this question on her mind. How can I honor him? What can I do to give back to the one that gave me back my brother? Do you pick up with me in John 12? If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up. John 12, verses 1 to 8. That's where we're going to be today. We all see on the screen as well. All right, John 12, verses 1 to 8. Now, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. But we learn that he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus knew this. He says, leave her alone, Judas, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. Now, in another version of this same event, the author Matthew, in, the, in his gospel, Matthew twenty six thirteen says, Truly, this is Jesus speaking, Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is being preached, wherever my gospel is being preached throughout the world, what she has done, what Mary has done, will also be told as well in memory of her. So why does Jesus commend this odd act of passion? What's going on here? Well, you have to understand that the others who saw this taking place were horrified at what Mary had done. This was a scandal. They accused her of flagrantly wasting an entire year's worth of wages. This precious family heirloom. They accused her of violating the rabbi's personal space. He's holy man. And she gets in there and she pours stuff on him and then she rubs her hair. This is weird. This is odd. Right? And so why doesn't, why doesn't Jesus condemn this woman? We would expect just get off of me. Right? Why doesn't Jesus condemn this woman? Why is his reply that she gets it? She gets it more than anybody else. It's Mary who's talked about here. She gets passion. Some of us here today might think that we live lives of passion for Jesus. Others of us might think that we're not passionate enough, that we owe Jesus something more. The reality is, is that each one of us is called to live a life of passion. We're called to be passionate followers of Jesus because passion for Jesus, hear this, passion for Jesus is worth more than anything else that the world has to offer. So that's great. Go home. Cool. We're good. Awesome. Good. Go home, pray more, and be dismissed. No, no, we're staying here. We're just getting started, guys. Okay, all right. No, that, we, we want to be careful that, this is, that we don't do these things out of an attempt to perform before God. But we pray, we fast, we, we evangelize, we do these Christian-y things that Jesus has commanded us to do 
out of an overflow of the love that we have for Jesus. What is it then that makes someone a passionate follower of Jesus? I think perhaps it might be best for us to start out with a list of what passion is not. First of all, passion is not passivity. We see Mary in our story today go far beyond the bounds of what was expected of her. Jesus just did an incredible thing for her. He raised her brother from the dead. Lazarus was dead. Jesus raises him to life. Mary didn't just sit there, thank him, thank you, Jesus, and move on with her life. No, she redirected her entire life to account for this action that Jesus did for her. Read in in, in verse 3 with me. It says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I don't think we understand this. This is scandalous. But, but Mary takes this pint of pure nard. Nard is a, a precious Middle Eastern flower. It was incredibly rare back then. And thousands of these rare flowers had to come together in order to create a pure liquid, a pint's worth of this nard. It was worth about 300 denarii, which is about equivalent to a year's worth of wages. Just imagine a gallon of your favorite young living essential oil, right? Which is also almost about a year's worth of wages, right? But either way, this pint of pure nard, it's precious. It's worth a lot of money. And Mary doesn't just dab this perfume on Jesus just ever so gently. In Matthew and Mark, they say that she poured it all over his head. And in John, they say that she poured it all over his feet as well. She breaks the bottle. And pours it all over Jesus. You have to imagine Jesus is just soaked in this. He's trying to eat food and he's soaked in this perfume. This is weird, right? What is she doing here? Why does she feel led to do such an odd action? I think that there's two things going on here. First of all, she's identifying Jesus as the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? We often translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. Into Greek, it means Christ. And then into English... It means the anointed one. What is Mary doing? She's anointing the anointed one. She's saying, you are Messiah, and I don't care who knows it. I'm passionate about you. Right? And secondly, like I said earlier, she knows that Jesus is about to die. He's about to be put on trial and most likely murdered. She's preparing his body for burial. Jesus is going to be dead in six days. She had no way of knowing that. But she must have felt it coming soon. And and how do we know this? We see that Jesus says in verse 7... He says, it was intended that, that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Jesus identifies that Mary knew what she was doing. She was passionately declaring her love for the Messiah, the anointed one of God who was about to die. And she was preparing his body with this dual purpose in mind. Let's get back to the point. Did Mary do this in order to win favor before God? Was she performing in order to get something in return? No. This leads me to my second point here, that passion is not performance. As Chris was talking about last week, the example of Martha, passion is not about over-functioning. It's not about performing in order to win or attain God's favor. Passion resides in knowing who you are and living a life in light of that. What do we see in verse 2? We see... As, as we were talking about last, last week with Martha, Martha, what is she doing here? Martha served. She's continuing to perform. 
She's continuing to perform. Passion is not performance. For so long, I thought that if I performed before God, he would have to like me. I thought that he would have to give me something in return if I prayed to him regularly, if I fasted weekly, or if I did all these crazy Christian-y things. He'd have to do something in return. And some people called me passionate for doing that, but that was a distorted passion. That was a, a passion where I used God as if I was a consumer to feel better about myself. And truthfully, I was anxious. I didn't know how to relate with God. I related at God. And Sky Jathani, he wrote this book a little while ago called With, and he outlines this principle when he says, life with God is different because its goal is not to use God. Its goal is God. He ceases to be a device we employ or a commodity we consume. Instead, God himself becomes the focus of our desire. When we try and perform our way into acceptance with God, when we, when we use our actions to try and get some kind of distorted cosmic leverage, we miss God in the process. We're called to have a life with him, not to perform for him or to relate at him, but to live presently with him, to live a life of presence in all that we do. A life of presence leads to a life of passion. Passion is not performance. The last thing that passion is not is passion isn't just talk. Passion is not just about saying the right thing. Passion is about living out your faith day after day after day for decades, for decades. And in our passage today, we see that Judas Iscariot misses this. He mistakes Mary's act of devotion for an act of stupidity, right? And verse four, pick up with me. He says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold? The money given to the poor. It was worth a year's wages. And then John lets us in on something. He says he did not say this because he cared about the poor. But why? Because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas Iscariot was all talk and no passion. He said something noble, right? Why not help the poor? Why not give money to those that need it? Why flagrantly waste this precious ointment? But Jesus knew better than to tell him that he was right. Jesus claps back, right? What does Jesus say? He says, leave her alone, Judas, right? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus knew that Judas was all talk. If he was passionate, he wouldn't have kept the money for himself. Jesus is God. Judas forgets this. (laughs) Jesus knew he was stealing, right? Then Jesus makes this fascinating statement. You you will always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Essentially saying, I'm leaving soon. The poor are going to stick around, but I'm not, Judas. This woman gets it, Judas. You don't. You're just talk. She gets passion. For Mary, Jesus became the focus of her life. Not money, not talk, but Jesus and Jesus alone. And some, passion is not passive, right? It also is an anxious It also isn't airy and full of empty platitudes. If all of these are not indicative of living a life of passion, then what are the things then that make somebody a passionate follower of Jesus? What makes someone a passionate follower of Jesus? Well, first of all, passionate followers of Jesus have a passion for the right thing. When we look at the world around us, we see people who are passionate for a lot of things. We see people passionate for fame, for money, for status, for acclaim. The list can go on and on. 
Passion in and of itself is not enough. See, we must have passion for the right thing. Mary had a passion for Jesus because of what Jesus had done on her behalf. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead just beforehand, and she knew that. She internalized that, and she turned that into action. In L.A., we can have passions for a vast array of things. We can be passionate about our public image. We can be passionate about, I don't know, how you edit that photo to look right on Instagram. You can be, you can be passionate about your health, something I should probably work more on, right? But whatever. Or a lot of us, we can be really passionate about our work. It's good. Maybe some of you don't relate to that at all, but I know that there are <laughs> a good amount of you <laughs> that are passionate about your work, and that's great. But whether it's health, whether it's um, your image, whether it's your work, I want to I challenge you. Mm, one second. I want to challenge you to integrate that. What does it look like for you to integrate your passion for Jesus? into your passion in other areas? Are those mutually exclusive? Or can those be integrated? How do you live out your passion for Jesus in everyday life? I want to challenge you to consider that. Mary knew that this odd act of devotion was going to be perceived as eccentric and odd, perhaps even as a scandal. She had passion for God in a very creative and strange fashion. But her focus was on the right thing. Her focus was on Jesus the whole way through, no matter the consequences. And this leads me to my second point. Is that passionate followers of Jesus count the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians of all time, Um, exemplifies the cost of discipleship well. Now, Bonhoeffer was famous for getting killed by the Nazi regime back in the 40s after he planned an assassination plot on Adolf Hitler. But before this all happened, Bonhoeffer wrote a book that, in my mind, will go down as one of the most important books of the 20th century. I really mean that. And it was called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, Bonhoeffer outlines what it means to count the cost of being a Christian. Bonhoeffer highlights this when he distinguishes between two two kinds of grace. He he says cheap grace and costly grace, right? Cheap grace is defined in this way. He says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. What is cheap grace? Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ himself. It isn't grace. It isn't grace. And in contrast, he defines costly grace in this way. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock continually. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. To follow seriously. Because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. So why bring up the cost of discipleship when I'm talking about passion? How do these things relate? Well, passionate followers of Jesus know the cost it takes to follow him, right? Passionate followers of Jesus seek repentance when they sin. They confess to one another when they sin. Passionate followers of Jesus understand the cost it takes to follow him over the course of decades. Passionate followers of Jesus have signed on the dotted line, right? They've declared that I will follow you, Jesus, at any cost, any cost. Cost, I am yours. I don't know what that cost will be, Jesus, but I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to commit to that. 
And you will have to count the cost of discipleship in many different ways. But let me tell you, it's worth it. It really is. This leads me to my third point, and that's that God calls us to be passionate followers of Jesus in many different ways. Passionate followers of Jesus can apply their passion in several different ways. Now, for me, I remember back in high school, I wanted to be this all-out, sold-out, weirdo Jesus freak. I was obsessed with Jesus, probably unhealthily, because I didn't know how to talk to anybody else. It was just weird, right? But uh, (laughs) during this time, God, God was able to redeem some of that, thankfully, and God, I, I pray this prayer regularly, and I, I would say, God, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you break my heart for what breaks yours? And what I expected God to do was for him to send me to Malaysia at age 16 and go free sex trafficking victims or something like that. I, I expected him to go send me to Tunisia and, and go do some incredible feat for God. But, but no, God... I was 16, right? 15, 16. God said, there's broken people around you right here. They break my heart. And I want you to care for them. I want you to dedicate your life to caring for these broken people that are within your sphere of influence right now. I thought that the only way to be passionate for Jesus was to move abroad and go do something incredible, some kind of crazy mission that I could come home and tell everybody about. That's performance, right? Not always, but it would have been for me. God was showing me that we can be passionate for him in so many different ways. You don't have to quit your day job and go enroll in seminary and become a pastor or go be a missionary. No, you can be passionate for Jesus today and tomorrow and this week and this next month and this next year in your sphere of influence. I know we have a ton of people in this congregation who are passionate followers of Jesus and their workplaces outside the walls of this church. I see Daniela Limbaga serving at Cedar sinai Hospital, helping disinfect the rooms after there's patients in there. I love that. She serves Jesus, and I know her. That is so good. Yeah, give it up for her. I see, I see Ryan Church, who goes and helps out homeless over in Santa Monica and on, on the beach. I, I love that. I, I am so blessed by that. And he came here and set up today. I, I love that. I, I see so many volunteers in this room that come together and put this whole service together so that we can just experience the power and the presence of Jesus. That's beautiful. I know that there are so many people in here who are diligently, passionately following after Jesus. I could brag on so many more of you. But it's not about me or Chris patting you on the back and saying, good job, great job, right? It's about you cultivating a life of passion from an overflow of love for Jesus. Now, you may say, that's cool for them. I, I want to be uh, passionate for Jesus, but how? Jesse, that's cool, but, but what does that look like? How do I get there? How do I live a passion when I'm a project manager and my boss has given me an unrealistic deadline and I just got to get it done? How do I uh, live passionately for Jesus when there's patients that I have to care for who are dying every day? Right? How, do I, how do I live passionately for Jesus when I'm unemployed? How do I live passionately for Jesus when I'm already incredibly busy as it is, and Jesse, you're telling me that I need to do more somehow. I need to somehow add more into my life. I want to tell you that in our passage, we see that Mary's action here is one of intense devotion to Jesus. Mary knew that Jesus didn't have much time left. And the only thing she knew to do, she poured out her love on Jesus with what she had. She wanted Jesus to know, and she wanted everyone who was there to know 
that she saw that Jesus was more worthy to her of her praise than anything else. She broke her bottle. I want to ask you today, what is your bottle? Mary had an expensive pint of pure nard. You don't. What do you have to give? You know what your bottle can be by determining a couple things, right? First of all, you want to ask, what are the needs around me? This could be anywhere from spending time with that weird, socially awkward coworker. For me, that's Chris, right? But, but aside... <laughs> I had to. I'm sorry. That's great. Yeah, but, okay. Uh, it could be that same homeless person. What are the needs around you that you see every single day, right? You just bless them with a cup of coffee and say, Jesus loves you, right? It could be your fellow church members sitting right next to you. I just need somebody to bless them with a meal and love and care. It could be us actually being the family of God together. And secondly, I want to say, what resources do I have to give? You can know what your bottle is by determining what resources you have to give. Your brain can go in several different ways. Maybe you have an extra bedroom to spare um, and bless somebody with a bed who doesn't have one. Maybe you have time to give, but that's probably none of us in here. We're all too busy, right? But maybe you have, maybe you have two ears, and, the, and two eyes, and the ability to really just sit with somebody and hear their story and bless them and care for them, take them out to dinner, and just care for the people that you know who are broken in your life. It's your responsibility to steward that well as a part of counting the cost of discipleship as a follower of Jesus. And third, I want to ask, will, will I actually choose to act on it? I may have an idea in my head right now, but... When push comes to shove on Wednesday, am I actually going to act on that or not? I want to challenge you. Are, you. are you willing to commit to that today? What is it that something? What is your bottle? Are you willing to commit to doing that? I'd love to invite the worship team up if we can. And as we close today, I really want to emphasize that we are called to be something more than just passive believers. We are called to be passionate followers of Jesus. The passion that Mary exercised was extravagant. She acted on that in light of the extravagant love that Jesus had so decadently and extravagantly poured on her. This morning, I want to invite you to the front to pray with our prayer team. If you feel like God might be stirring in you something, a desire to become more passionate for the right thing, for Jesus. And brother, my sister, I want you to see that Jesus has poured out extravagant love on you. And I want to ask you, what is your bottle? How might God be calling you to pour out love back on him?